Annenberg Media. This is the Annenberg Learner Podcast, where we aim to elevate the education profession through conversations that inspire, recognize, and encourage innovation and best practices in the field. We track the lived experience of teachers, students, and parents alongside the ecosystem that serves them. Guest speakers will share what's working and the steps we can take to reimagine and redesign teaching and learning for our most vulnerable populations. This is Nathie Rodriguez welcoming you to the Annenberg Learner Podcast. In March 2020, Annenberg Learner partnered with 2-Bit Circus to provide free STEAM-based online projects. The Annenberg Learner site contains over 150 hands-on science, arts, and tech projects designed for educators, parents, and children across the country and around the world. And today, we are honored to welcome Dr. Leah Haynes, CEO and Chief Juggler at 2-Bit Circus Foundation. Dr. Haynes is a CEO of 2-Bit Circus Foundation, whose mission is to serve children in all economic situations by creating learning experiences to inspire entrepreneurship, encourage young inventors, and instill environmental stewardship. Dr. Haynes has been a teacher at nursery school and a university professor of business ethics. She's been a parent to two children through the public school system in Los Angeles, run a private acting school for children. Her organization currently provides STEAM curricula for elementary, middle, and high school, all designed to foster creativity, entrepreneurship, and environmental stewardship as core social values to be nurtured in schools, homes, and communities everywhere. Leah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Nathy. And that was quite an introduction. You took a, uh, went back to some things that I haven't thought about in a while, and, and it was a kind of uh, fun to rethink them. Well, thank you. Um, so I'll start by asking you a couple of questions about the foundation. And um, so to start, for those that don't know, what is 2-Bit Circus Foundation? So 2-Bit Circus Foundation is actually the coming together of uh, four smaller nonprofits. And it started uh, about eight years ago. I was brought in as the first executive director of uh, a little nonprofit called Trash for Teaching that collects manufacturers clean waste and uses it for project-based learning. Then shortly after I was in place, I met Brent Bushnell and Eric Gadman, who are the two co-founders of 2-Bit Circus. And they were thinking of starting their own nonprofit. And I begged them to, instead of starting their own, partner with us, let us become the 2-Bit Circus Foundation. And because all that they were doing is the, this really exciting approach to what STEAM education can be. And, and STEAM not STEM because they believed, as I did at the time and still do, that the arts are equally as important as the other uh, parts of, of a STEM education. So we keep it at the same capitalized uh, letter as the other disciplines. And, and shortly after we partnered, and we did that in 2017, two smaller nonprofits that were struggling with one thing or another had come to us for support and we we uh, brought them under the big tent and so the four of us together became the two-bit circus foundation and we still gather manufacturers clean waste to use in in schools 
but we added to that all of this fabulous curriculum that Two Bit Circus had, and and Two Bit Circus Corporate has uh, what they're calling a micro amusement park in downtown Los Angeles in the Arts District, and it is just uh, a, a fabulous experience of of VR and uh, and video uh, games, uh, arcade games, and an interactive theater. So we have that to bring the kids for field trips. Um, and, and in that one, you know, kids are playing video games all the time. So if we can get them in that environment and then talk to them about the kinds of careers that exist around that environment, then it can spark their interest. And just one other thing about the coming together with Two-Bit Circus, one of the things that Brent was talking about that really was exciting to me was that if you think about the science fair, that gets the kids who are already interested in science engaged. But what they tried did was the steam carnival, which got all kids engaged because who doesn't want to go to a carnival? And then that's what they were doing is getting the kids there, having them excited and then explaining to them all of the things that are in, involved in creating arcade games and virtual experiences. So the the idea was that, you know, if you can get all the kids there, then you can recruit more kids into the sciences and, and engineering. And so that's. That's what we do. Everything we do is, is to try and get kids, sometimes trick them into understanding how important STEM is in their life. And uh, other times it's just uh, engaging with them where they already are and trying to help them see themselves as future problem solvers and inventors. As part of its mission to advance excellent teaching in American schools, Annenberg Learner funds and distributes educational video programs coordinated online and print materials for the professional development of K-12 teachers. Many programs are also intended for students in the classroom and viewers at home with videos that exemplify excellent teaching. K-12 educators, students, and lifelong learners may access Annenberg Learner resources for free at learner.org. Please note, rights restrictions may limit the availability of some series. For the latest information about learner programming and availability, sign up for the Annenberg Learner Newsletter at learner.org. Is there a particular age a Two-Bit Circus serves either at the foundation or through the or Two-Bit Circus Corporation for the carnival? Yeah, I would say that our strongest area is middle school, but truthfully, we have done projects for pre-kindergarten through college. We've done a couple of years of work with, um, with Oxnard College in exposing their students to people who, who look like them and are in STEAM uh, careers. And, and I say that, you know, having, I grew up on a farm in the middle of the middle of nowhere. And when I went to Oxnard College for the first time, uh, one of our board members was there and she said, do you notice anything different about this college? And I said, well, first of all, I had no trouble parking. And she said, well, that's part of the evidence of our student body. She said the majority of their students are first time attending college and they're coming on the bus. They're mostly from agricult the agricultural community. So I had a real soft spot in my heart for that group from the beginning and, uh, and mostly uh, a Latin community. So looking for... Uh, people in executive level jobs that, that we could bring the students to and have them you know, talk to the students. So as near peer as possible, uh, trying to get you know, early stage career people talking to them or even you know, someone who had a story to tell about where they came from. I'm also the first person in my family to get a university education. 
you know, my children have, but no one in my generation or before me did. So I really related to that group, but we, we really do work in every age group. That's great. Yes. Um, uh, it's great to hear that the foundation serves across all ages and there can be that, uh, that curiosity can be sparked at any age. Um, I'm curious, uh, I, I read through some of the core values of Two-Bit Circus, um, and I'd love to read those out loud, if that's okay, um, because yeah. it, it really brought to mind the last three school years now that parents have experienced the pandemic. Um, so first one, learning happens everywhere all the time. Second one, radical niceness, building each other up. Redefining failure, facing challenges with optimism and resilience. The power of collective creativity and unleash passion, curiosity, and creativity. So I'm curious how this, um, how these core values have uh, shaped your work in the during the pandemic and what the impact has been on the foundation and, um, and Two-Bit Circus in general. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for reading those because th that is probably the page of our book that is most important to me. And a couple of them in particular, the radical niceness, um, that was actually uh, Maya Stark who came to us from LA Makerspace, which is one of the nonprofits that joined us. And she was the one who put that out as a, a as a possibility for this page. And I immediately thought, yes, it's perfect. And, the, and she really had to fight a little bit with some of the others to keep it there because, oh, that's too soft or it's too. But I think it's it's so important in this climate, both for adults and children, to think of that as a core value, radical uh, niceness, just, you know, the idea that we can build each other up. Uh, and then the other one that, that is really important to me is the reframing failure. The fact that most children uh, who are currently in school, especially in the lower grades and, and middle school, they're really nervous to try anything that they don't already know. And that's just so not productive for a future. We need kids to feel like Failing is not the end of something. It's just new information on your way there. I think Edison said he didn't fail. He just found 9,999 ways that it didn't work. And, and that's the, you know, the attitude that we really try to instill in kids. That if you're failing, then that means you're trying something new. That means you're learning new things. And the word itself, if we could find a way to replace it, would be ideal. But at this point, just taking the sting out of it is, is really important. And then, you know, how it relates to the pandemic for us, most of our work pre-pandemic was very hands-on and face-to-face. -face. And so suddenly, we had to adjust. And we created a slate of digital projects based on the in-person ones that we were doing. And, and it actually, you know, again, the, the kid in me, the farm kid who didn't have access to anything because it was too far a drive and my parents, you know, busy on the farm, not able to take me to things. So I would hear about stuff that was going on, but I didn't have access to it. Whereas, you know, doing things digitally now, it, there's no geographic issues. There's no worry about whether parents can drive you or not. And 
And the one good thing that came out of the pandemic was the one-to-one -one ratio for kids with uh, devices. So suddenly we could reach kids uh, anywhere. And, you know, I know that also the uh, accessibility to internet is not always uh, key, but, but there were workarounds and, and the school, uh, uh, the school board made adjustments so that kids could have hubs in different places. And so we, you know, it, for us, it was challenging and we lost a lot of staff. We, we tried really hard. We, like from March until August held on to everyone and just had everybody designing and building new programs. But then in August, when it became clear that we were not going to be back to school and, and things were not letting up yet, uh, we had to downsize. And that was heartbreaking. Just, you know, there, were, there weren't people that we wanted to get rid of. There were just people, we just could not stay alive if we didn't adjust. So we, we did some major adjusting. But I think coming out of the pandemic, we, we will keep all of our virtual programs alive and, and add back the in-person work that we were doing uh, previously. Got it. Can you, um, can you talk a little bit more about what the virtual, uh, what, what that looks like? Um, are students, is there an instructor? Are they working on projects off, offline or is it all online? Um, yeah, if you can describe that a little bit, that would be great. Sure. It was um, a variety of different projects. Like some of them were uh, with with the um, with the Oxnard Elementary School program. We sent kits to the to the um, district office, and then students picked up because they were still picking up uh, their meals. So students picked up kits, and then with a facilitator we had projects that they could do. Uh, in another uh, situation with, uh, with SOLA, we did uh, something called uh, Tell Your Story with Music and Video. And, and that was born out of just the idea that all these kids are struggling with isolation. You know, at the most social time in their life, they're uh, stuck at home. And for some kids, being stuck at home was not awful, but for a lot of kids, it really was. So we wanted to give them an emotional outlet that could tell their story. So we, we didn't give them any direction on it other than how to do it, how to handle uh, the software program we were teaching them, how to put music under their story if it was a video, or how to write a song if it was a, a song they wanted to use to tell the story. And that actually came out of my own experience with my son when he was about 15 and, you know, high school kids are often depressed and, and things don't work out or they get dumped on a Friday night or whatever. And I, I had um, got my son a keyboard and that was the savior for him through high school. He had a place to lock himself up and be creative if he was uh, dealing with some struggles. So that was where we started. And I just thought, okay, we can't get every student a keyboard, but what could we do? And, and the staff is all saying, we, you don't need a keyboard anymore. You just need a computer. And they all had that. So we created programs that addressed the current need. And some of it was academic. So, you know, trying to keep them on track there, but a lot of it was really based on social emotional learning and, and giving them some, uh, you know, some some 
patterns that they could follow to get themselves out of a tough emotional place. I love that. I love that. And it reminds me going back to one of the core values of learning happens everywhere all the time. Um, I think during the pandemic, there was this sense that students were, were missing out on a lot. But um, I think what maybe we didn't consider is that there's their students are always learning, even when they're not in the classroom. And um, that opportunity to, to bring music and them tell their stories sounds like a wonderful opportunity for them to share. Yeah, and you know, to that point, like the, the talk about learning loss has been um, a little problematic in that if we, if the kids feel punished when they're coming back to school, if they feel like, you know, oh, you know, they're, they're being put on to do more work to make up for what they lost last year, then it's like going from a year of pain to a year of more pain. So we were really trying to create things that could be used as they go back into the classroom as well, that would support that learning without them feeling like they're behind and have to catch up. The Annenberg Foundation is a family foundation that provides funding and support to nonprofit organizations in the U.S. and globally. The foundation is dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. To learn more, go to annenberg.org. In the conversation, there's, there's a significant focus, and rightfully so, on learning loss and social-emotional learning and mental health both for students and all of the school community and um, stakeholders. Um, I'm curious, uh, where, where, does STEM, where do you see STEM education fitting in in this current environment um, for, you know, for the next couple of years? I really think it is key that we, we really need to um, give kids opportunities for hands-on learning and STEM and STEAM offer a, a great deal in that, uh, in that arena. And it's also, um, you know, follow the instruction projects are not as helpful because in the future, the robots are going to do the follow the instruction work. So giving kids an opportunity to iterate and, and invent and explore gives them a chance to build the critical thinking and problem solving muscles that they that they will need in the future. And, and that is really where I think uh, STEAM and STEM offer a great deal of, uh, of opportunity. I mean, I, I've often said that with with expensive robotics kits, you're getting, you know, a fun experience of building the robot, but it really is a follow the instructions experience. Whereas giving them random materials and old motors or, you know, Raspberry Pi, Arduino, we have something called the Circus Duino, giving them those items and asking them to build a robot, they become problem solvers. They, they have to solve problems. So I think it has a significant role to play in this next couple of years. And it can be one, if it's handled well, that is fun and engaging for the students as well and doesn't feel like a punishment. You're right. Um, I think one of the things that has made our country, um, you know, be so uh, creative and entrepreneurial and um, some of the best companies that have come out have been here, um, innovative. It's because of this focus on critical thinking, creativity, collaboration, um, and that comes from, from STEAM. 
and not following instructions. Um, right. And it's also empowering to see, have a someone um, build or create something from scratch. Uh, I can't imagine, um, you know, what our economy would look like if that those experiences weren't available to students. Exactly. Uh, the Just the opportunity. And I think the other thing that is key to that is teachers need to get comfortable with a bit of a mess. Like yes. Letting kids experiment and build and... I mean, that's one of the things about gathering manufacturers clean waste. Like, it's not expensive. If the kids build a robot, it all falls apart. They can take it apart and start over. And nobody spent a lot of money on it. It's really about the experience. And and teachers, you know, I think the, the two things that we struggle the most with is getting them comfortable with letting there be a mess from time to time. And also uh, not stopping the student when you see that what they're doing isn't going to work. Let them experience it, not because you want them to feel bad, but because in the if we go and say, okay, here's why that's not going to work, they'll remember it for a few minutes. But if they build it and it doesn't work and they have to go back in and try to figure out what went wrong and, and what could they do to address it, they'll remember that for a lifetime. That's, that's you know, anchored into their experience. So... My first experience on the job actually was a, a bring your student or bring your uh, child to work day at Raytheon. And we had them building Rube Goldberg contraptions. And the biggest job that whole day was just getting the adults to step back and let the students or their, their children be the directors of the project. Because these were all engineers. They're all aerospace people. They were taking control and giving the kids instructions. And I think both with teachers and parents, it's really about uh, helping the, the child ask better questions of themselves and the project to find their way to the answers as opposed to you answering the questions for them. There's a really good example of the importance of this in a movie uh, called Spare Parts. And it is a true story of four kids in New Mexico who wanted to take part in an underwater robotics competition. Now these were uh, some of them undocumented, all of them from under, uh, you know, from very poor families. And none of the four of them had ever seen the ocean and they wanted to be part of this competition. They ended up getting into the competition. They had one uh, teacher who was willing to back them and they ended up registering uh, for the university group rather than the high school group by accident, but it was too late. They just went with it. And at the, you know, their machine was, wasn't nearly as, you know, beautiful and, and well-designed as the MIT and Stanford and, and those uh, schools. But where, where they really did shine was when they had the uh, panel, the interview in front of the panel, because they'd had so many problems that they had to solve that they understood everything about the working of their machine. And the wealthier students, when they were questioned about the working of their machines, when they had a problem, they just spent more money and fixed it. So they didn't really understand, all, they couldn't answer the questions the same way these high school kids could. And in the, you know, spoiler alert on the movie, it's well worth watching anyway, 
But those kids won. And then for the next several years, that high school entered that competition and kept winning. And they were, it's part of, you know, the evidence that I use to promote our, our idea that it's not about spending a lot of extra money. It's about being creative and giving the kids room to, uh, to build something. Um, that's great. Thank you. Uh, the movie is Spare Parts. Was it, Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Thank you. So um, you've touched on this a couple of times about steam not having to be expensive. Um, and, it, you know, it's been a long, it's been a while since I've been in a school environment. Um, and I, I'm curious for, for schools that have like limited budgets or, um, or even parents that are looking for ways to bring in this type of learning to their, to their home, to their kids or in schools, how, how do they do that? How is it um, not expensive? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start with an example of someone you should definitely have on your podcast in the future. His name is Tim Griffin, and he has a, an organization called Griffin Ed, but he's a retired school teacher. And he was teaching fifth grade math. And when he told me this story, I just like, it was so perfect because it didn't cost anybody a penny and it was so effective. He added something to his Friday afternoon because he said, you know, Friday afternoon, the kids were all thinking about what they were going to do over the weekend. And then on Monday, he'd have to review everything they forgot over the weekend. So on Friday afternoon, he implemented something that he called Masterpiece Theater. And it was, he broke this class into two groups and they had to do two plays. They each had to do a play that incorporated the math that they had worked on that week. And so it gave him Friday afternoon to do his own planning because they were so busy creating their play. And it gave him Monday back because they didn't forget what they put in that play. And and so it it was such a simple remedy and, and it cost nothing. And every math teacher in the country could be doing that. Every uh, doesn't just have to be math either. You could apply that because who would have thought you could have made math uh, a theater experience? But whatever you can do to anchor things in and involve more emotions than than a lecture does. Uh, so the other, you know, the getting started at uh, inexpensive projects really you can have kids bring in an old toaster. Like if mom and dad are throwing away an appliance. Let's take it apart and see how it worked. Let's, that's reverse engineering. There's education in that. We do it with uh, speakers and we have the, the students build, make their own headset. We call it Beats by Me. And someone said, aren't you afraid that Dr. Dre is going to sue you? And I said, well, wow, that would be publicity that no one could afford. But so far he has not tried to sue us over using the idea of Beats by Me. But the, the kids make their own working headset. And it's actually a high school, like an AP physics uh, course. So would usually be uh, juniors or, or sophomores making this. And we, we did it with a summer camp of kids who were eight to 12 years old. And, you know, in the, in the classroom, maybe they'll have two classes to, to complete the project. We had two weeks for these younger kids and they, we didn't give them any instruction. We took apart a speaker together, looked at how it was working and, and what was needed. We had all the material there. And then it was just, well, let's give it a try. Let's start. And some of the kids got it really early on. And we had those kids help the other kids so that the facilitators were there. But 
but not to guide or even instruct. And the by the end of the two weeks, every student had a working headset. And then we had them, we did little interviews with them about their invention on just on our phones, recorded it. And then they had to create a, a sales board for it to show their parents. So on the final day, the parents came and it was like a little Shark Tank event for the kids. So they got up on stage and they explained why they created what they created. They showed it and their pitch was for why it should be manufactured. And in those interviews with the kids, they understood how that sound was transmitted as well as the physics teacher that we did the video with the first time we did the event. And I remember, you know, I, I'm sure in school, I learned how sound was transmitted, but I couldn't explain it to you before doing this project with the kids because I heard about it in a lecture style. I didn't make something that had sound come out of it. And some of those kids, I mean, talk about adjusting to failure. I said, like, some of them got it right away and they became the helpers for the other kids. And some of the kids failed seven, eight, nine times to get sound to come out of their uh, headset. But by the time when they did get it, boy, they knew exactly what had gone wrong because they did the adjustments each time. And, and there was a lot of pride in the room when they were showing their parents what they had created. That's so great. I love it. I love the idea of bringing, bringing being able to bring a device from home that's no longer working and trying to make it work and do the reverse engineering process. Um, yeah, and you know, te like teachers can ask families to keep keep bottle caps, keep you know, wash out the the uh, container and and keep containers and. You, there, you can ask the families to, and you can put together a little atelier in the classroom or in the school where you keep those things for kids to make projects. How do, uh, if, if I'm a teacher and I'm wanting to um, uh, bring more steam into my classroom, where, where should I start? Well, I'd send them to Annenberg Learner, first of all, to the steam <laughs> section in your, I mean, our, our group refers to your database of, of projects as the Fort Knox of curriculum. I mean, it is just, there's so much in there and it's so amazing. And I think that there, that's a, a great place to start. And, you know, as you mentioned in your introduction, we uh, put all of our projects on there uh, with you a, a couple of years ago. And so it's a really, you know, th there are lots of ways to start this that are not costly. Um, the, the project books that we've put together are designed to help the teacher, but not to be given to the student. And for the teacher, we show what standards alignment uh, the project addresses and, uh, and what grade level it's appropriate for. And then we tell the teacher the kinds of things they're going to need. But um, but it won't be, you know, you need bottle caps this size. It'll be, you need something that will turn for a wheel. You need something that can act as an axle. Uh, you, you need, you know, some, it, it needs to be able to carry a payload. So it, it needs to, so we, we give them uh, help with what they're going to need, but not exactly because there's no, we, we don't want them all to look alike. And this is an interesting challenge right now. We have new partners in Hong Kong and uh, 
And, and they're really struggling with the approach of not giving instruction because they are used to telling the students exactly what they need to know and then having them memorize that material. And their challenge uh, has been, you know, at least what they've told us their challenge is they don't, they, they're, they're struggling to get kids to be able to think critically and to um, ideate. They, they, they can copy something, but they can't create something. And I think that's part of the barrier. And, and really for us at this stage, the, the real challenge is having the teachers understand that, that they can struggle through some of this as well. And, and it's okay if the student sees the teacher learning something in front of them, because that will help, uh, help them see that you know, learning is a lifelong experience and you don't need to have all the answers when you start. Yes, I can see how that can be a challenge. Um, it's, it's a bit of a cultural, could be a, a cultural change for some um, teachers or even just school environments. Um, I'm curious where, where does this type of um, uh, education fit in a school day if I'm thinking about in the US? Um, are there particular classes that happen during the day or is it mostly after school? Um, is it considered enrichment? Where does it, where do you see it fitting? Well, I, I guess the, the real answer is probably all of the above, but the perfect world solution to this would be really in every class, there's, there's room for project-based learning. In every subject, there's room for it. And not only is there room for it, it just helps the student learn so much better. It, anytime you can involve more than one sense at a time or more than one emotion at a time is going to be helpful to the student. And the first school I toured when I took the job was uh, Parlos Ninos downtown. And they have a little atelier in the back of every classroom. And, and they have been using trash for teaching from the beginning, from the first day it opened. And they have in their front hallway a, a, a huge china cabinet with like all glass. And it is filled with materials from trash for teaching. And it just made me feel, so, I was so happy to walk through that school and see in their English language class, they have the students uh, make something that comes from the book they just read. And in, in their, their um, civics class, they walked through downtown, they did a little field trip, walked through one area of downtown, came back and built a mural of what they saw on their walk. I mean, there's just, there's always a way to add a project. And, and get, even if, if people buy material, like we have memberships at the warehouse and people can come and and it's sort of like when you donate to NPR, you get a sweater. Well, you donate to us and you get stuff. And it's usually like colorful, random stuff. But it, even with that, uh, a school can take a $1,000 membership and, and that'll serve the school, most schools for a year. And, and teachers can just come and pick up when they, when they need something or when they've got a project they want to do. But uh, I, I think there's room for it in every class. We do a lot of work in after school. We do a lot of work in summer camps. Uh, but but there, I would say in the last couple of years, just prior to the pandemic and now as schools are coming back, uh, there's a real interest in, in having kids 
building and making more and learning more from activity rather than sitting in, in rows or even, you know, the more progressive schools where they're sitting at tables. It's still sitting still to be taught and they'll learn more if they're active. Yes, I think you mentioned uh, when bringing in emotions, storytelling, having them share their own stories and experiences through these projects. Um, are the key to to really deepen the learning. Yes, and, and, and make connections because that's that's what we do as humans. <laughs> Absolutely. Be a part of America's Student Support Network. Become a tutor, a mentor, or serve to support young people through quality opportunities today. Go to GetReadySet.org to learn how you can help. And if you are located in California, you can volunteer to tutor online today by going to StepUpTutoring.org. StepUp Tutoring's mission is to drive student success by providing free online tutoring and mentorship to elementary school students in third through sixth grades. Help spread the word. Prospective tutors may apply online through the StepUp Tutoring website website at stepuptutoring.org. So I read a little bit about the STEAM lab maker spaces. Can you talk a little bit about those and um, where, what schools, I guess, um, what type of sites have the STEAM lab maker spaces and how does 2-Bit Circus uh, support them? Uh, yeah, this is my favorite project that we do actually. Um, and I, we've, we've put over 200 now in mostly schools in, in the Los Angeles area and some in Orange County and up in the Central Valley and a few out of state, but most of them here locally. And we do professional development around it to help the teachers move from lecture style to learning by doing. And we support them with uh, refills. They can order a refill for the STEAM lab when they start going through their materials. But we also encourage them to, you know, sometimes kids make something and they wanna take it home, that's fine. But often, especially with the older classes, they can make it, take it apart and put it back uh, and use the material again and again and again. So uh, that's the, you know, I, maybe I got a little off topic with it, but I, I think the, the, the real beauty of the makerspace is that it is a place where kids can uh, have an idea and then try to create something around it. I and mean, we do a, a couple of competitions I, 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 and one is, the inventors challenge where the kids are challenged to come up with something in their community or their school or their home that they think could be improved on and then design something that could improve it. And you know that's the, that's the only real instruction we give there. And often they will do, I mean, last year, one of the little girls who won her project, she did it with her grandfather. And it was just like the sweetest video we got back. And she had goats. So she invented a, like a, a pooper scooper like it would, a, you would have for a dog, only it was the proper size for a goat. And, her, and, and they had fixed it onto a little red wagon. And it was just an adorable uh, invention. But not only did it give her the idea that, hey, this is a problem that I can solve. It also gave her that intergenerational experience of making something with her grandpa. There's benefit all the way around there. And she was one of the students who had worked in one of the STEAM Lab maker spaces. So we, we really work there to try and, and help teachers see the value of experimentation. My favorite visit of a, of a STEAM Lab maker space that we had built was at Webster uh, school in, on the west side of Los Angeles. 
And when I went, it was a well-organized room that had glue stuck on the tables and paint that had spilled on the tables. And, and that's, you know, when a kid walks in there, they have just a like a very basic reaction to like, I can work in here. I'm not going to get in trouble. If they walk into a pristine making maker space with white cabinets and what, you know, all very clean there, then there's a nervousness. If I spill glue, if I spill paint, what if I make a mess? Whereas, you know, a, a real maker space should be a clean mess. <laughs> there should be stuff for them to work with that, you know, and again, it was very well organized, but, but there wasn't a problem if a little bit of paint got spilled and had to be wiped up. I love this idea of um, if it's too, <laughs> if it's too pristine, it doesn't encourage uh, them to get, get creative and get dirty, I guess. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, I also, the, the point about working with um, family members and um, intergenerational uh, collaboration and learning. Um, I think e even now in the pandemic, when a lot of students were home with families and learning from grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles, um, that's a huge opportunity to work on a, on a project together. Um, I love I love that idea. <laughs> yeah, and you know the interesting in schools we batch kids by age, right? And mm. um, I think it's for our simplicity that we do that. And I guess maybe in the very early years that's important while they're all learning to read and that. But I think school would would be better served if we batched kids by interest later in life, right? From from maybe middle school on, you could have the apprentice group which would be the middle school group, but they're interested in this, you know, aerospace. So they might be working with high school kids who are, who have been studying it for several years. Because no at no time in your life are you going to work with only people in your own age group. So finding a way to mix that up. I mean, I'm a big uh, fan at school of having um, the, the parents come to the maker space and talk about what they do for a living and then have the kids make something in there that's relevant to what they were just told. And, and help, like anyone who's baked a cake is a maker. Anyone who's fixed a fence or, or you know, built a, a fire in the fireplace, you're a maker. You learn to make something with your hands. And so every parent has something that they could come and talk to the kids about that the kids could then try to make something around. And I, I really do like the intergenerational, actually my master's program, uh, what the, uh, my thesis was on intergenerational uh, care facilities, like putting early childhood education into seniors facilities. And, you know, the seniors not feeling quite so lonely and the little ones having somebody to read to them. That sounds fantastic. Are there models of that um that that you know of that you could share either either that particular model or even the middle school and high school apprenticeship model yeah i haven't seen any middle school high school apprenticeship ideas but that's something that you know i, I co-authored a book this during the pandemic with nolan bushnell who's the founder of atari and that was part of what we presented in our book as an idea for a way to rearrange schools to have them a little more 
uh, effective because the older kids anchor in the learning while they're teaching the younger kids. And, uh, and the younger kids believe things that they're told by near peers much faster than they believe what they're told by we adults. Um, in terms of the daycare and elder care, there is one facility in the valley, the name escapes me right now, but I could certainly find it. And, and they have uh, daycare on the same premises as a senior care facility. And we were there, uh, and I get chills just thinking about it again, because what, you know, the, the little ones come over to the senior uh, facility twice a day for reading. And you could tell the, the minute the door opened and the little ones came in, they all ran to who their favorite person was to be read to. And everyone in the room had had a little one with them. So it wasn't like everybody ran to, I'm, I'm guessing that in the beginning of it, they paired them and then the kids just became attached. And you could see in the seniors, they just lit up. Like these, this is, a lot of seniors don't have grandchildren, or at least they don't have them locally. So it was so healing for the seniors in the room and for the little ones, it was just fabulous. They, you know, one-on-one -on -one attention or two-on-one -on -one attention, depending on where, who they chose to go to. Uh, and it, it had been going on, I think they were in their sixth or seventh year when we uh, saw the, the um, operation. Wow. I, I feel like there should be more of that everywhere. <laughs> Absolutely, there should be. Helping to alleviate some of the loneliness that exists in seniors' lives and then just giving little ones somebody that is paying attention to them and reading with them when they're tiny. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'd like to go back to uh, circle back on the book. What is, what is the name of it and is it released? Can we find it? Where can we find it? Well, it will be, it's coming out with uh, Greenleaf Publishing, and it was supposed to come out in January, but the paper and ink shortage is slowing things down. And, and the title, um, we were calling it School of the Future. We've been told that's not available as a title, so we're still uh, LearnUp, uh, L-E-R-N-I-P, is the name, and it's the subtitle that we're looking for. And, and uh LearnUp is the name of Nolan Bushnell's new uh, venture, which is an educational program uh, designed to really to, if we could take the best of the video game world and the best of the curriculum development world and mash them together, that's what this book is about. Kids are playing video games all the time and parents are, how do we get them off the video games? So we decided, well, why don't we just make video games where the learning is automatic, where we know that rather than having to write a test on Friday afternoon for your math class, we know when you get to level six that you're algebra ready. We know when you get to, you know, so each level in the game is the test. And so if you have the games fun and exciting enough that the kids want to play them, then you don't have to worry about getting them out of the, playing their game on a Saturday it's okay because they're moving forward. And it's also based on individualized learning so that the student, the, the computer is also, the software gives us the idea of what the student is most interested in and directs them down that path. So you, you can teach, you know, and this is not an original idea. I think the Waldorf system has been doing it for ages where 
you find a child who's really interested in music and you teach them geography through the history of their favorite musicians or their favorite style of music. And you can teach geography and history that way. And, and math and music are such a you know, uh, partnership already that if, if you can find the interest of the child and then help them uh, become curious about other things based on how those other things intersect with their main interests. We, we try to get kids to think about what they want to do when they grow up all the time. And it's such a crazy question when you ask even a high school kid or sometimes even college kids, what are you going to do when you finish school? If, if we could just help them to see that your interest has this variety of careers around it. And we don't need to take them out of their interest. We just need to help them see how their interest can influence their career choices. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I think a lot of what school should be about is um, figuring out what they're passionate about and helping them continue to go that route. Exactly. And yet what, what we're doing for, you know, in many experiences, what kids are doing in school is surviving just getting from Monday to Friday, doing what they have to do to learn to, you know, to pass to the next grade whenever possible, and a lot are not. I mean, just looking at the uh, graduation rates in our country, it's a bit sad. And and I don't think it's that the kids are failing us. I think that we're failing them. Um, Leah, is there anything else that you would like to share with us on the Annenberg Learner podcast today? Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground and I really, I appreciate your questions and how well thought out this has been. And I would happily, will happily share with you the information as soon as we have a publishing date. Great. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nathy. The Annenberg Learner Podcast joins the catalog of multimedia professional learning content to support educators teaching in more effective ways. Annenberg Learner is the education division of the Annenberg Foundation. Learner supports the foundation's mission to encourage the development of more effective ways to share ideas and knowledge. Go to learner.org and annenberg.org to learn more.